it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another one of our podcasts, Vet Chat. We're very fortunate today to have Rowena Packer and Sarah Heath on the line. We're going to be talking about pandemic pets. Before we start the topic, I'd just like to get both of them to introduce themselves. So Rowena, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Anthony. Um, I'm Marina. I am a an animal behaviour and welfare scientist at the Royal Veterinary College in London. Um, I primarily uh, research, so my research interests are mainly around uh, canine behaviour and welfare, generally um, related to how health impacts behaviour and cognition and the interplay between those various factors. But also, more and more as the years go on, I'm really interested in uh, human-animal interactions and the knowledge, behaviour um, and attitudes of companion animal owners and how that influences particularly canine welfare. Thank you. And Sarah? Uh, hi, Anthony. Um, I'm Sarah Heath. I'm a vet and I'm a specialist in behavioural medicine. I run behavioural referrals veterinary practice based in Chester. do quite a bit of teaching in within the veterinary profession um, and a specialist in the European College of Animal Welfare and Behavioural Medicine. And I think perhaps even more importantly, Sarah, you're a Liverpool fan as well. Well, that is the most important thing about me. Yeah, I am a massive Liverpool Football Club fan and we're on for the quadruple this year. Anyway, let's talk about something other than football. <laughs> exactly. But um, we we were very fortunate earlier on in the year to do a series of uh, webinars on the pandemic pets problems. And I know, uh, Sarah, during those webinars, you referenced Rowena's work quite extensively. Um, obviously, Rowena's doing some really important stuff in the whole area of, of how the pandemic has affected our, our pets. Perhaps if we perhaps start, Rowena, with telling us a little bit about the research that you've been doing for those people who haven't been on the webinar and maybe some of the main findings that you've had from the, the research. Yeah, absolutely. So like much of the rest of the country, um, back in, in early 2020, at the start of the pandemic, um, I was becoming increasingly concerned by media reports that more and more of the British public were either seeking out, so looking for puppies online or actually buying puppies. And it really became a bit of a, a media darling. It was in all of the major tabloids and newspapers stating that you know, there was a shortage of puppies during lockdown. And there wasn't much hard data at that point. Um, it started to trickle out of some of the organisations like the Kennel Club, who reported that they were seeing hugely increased numbers of um, potential owners coming to their find a puppy tool compared to the comparable periods um, in 2019. Um, and this kind of um, triggered this whole pandemic puppy phenomenon. And as a researcher, I was sitting thinking, this would be really interesting to look into. It seems like a really important topic. But sat on my hands for a bit with lots of other work and thought, somebody else will do this. It's fine. Somebody's going to be on the case. It um, seems like an, an important, obvious research question. But when it, it appeared nobody had, and BVA Animal Welfare Foundation um, very smartly put out a call for desk-based research for um, kind of COVID-proof research during the pandemic. I thought, right, we need to try and tackle this and see what's going on um, from a kind of comparative perspective. How and why is puppy buying changing in the UK, if it is at all, given that we know that media reports aren't always very evidence-based? Um, 
And this was driven mainly by three big areas of concern. Um, the first, which the media really latched onto, was impulsive buying of puppies by households who were potentially poorly suited to keeping a dog after the pandemic. Obviously, during those early periods of lockdown, life did seem so odd. Um, and thinking about the future, thinking about now, thinking about 2022, we didn't know what life was going to look like. So there's a lot of worry about there being a tsunami of relinquishments once restrictions, particularly during those really tight phases of restrictions, um, were relaxed. The flip side of that was with this increased um, demand and what appeared to be, and I hate to say the word, unprecedented demand for puppies, that there was worries that to fill that there would need to be um, an influx of puppies, potentially from unscrupulous breeders, um, both including puppy farms in the UK, but as we already knew, there was an issue with illegal importation of puppies. Um, often from Eastern Europe and the UK. So seeing breeders um, and illegal importers as part of the illegal puppy trade cashing in on that increased demand. And then last, and I think this is absolutely um, in Sarah's domain um, as, as a clinical behaviourist, that thinking about the early lives of puppies that were being reared during this period, even if they were bought by owners that were really well set up for keeping a dog post-pandemic, if they'd done all of their due diligence in finding a breeder that didn't have any red flags that appeared to be a really bona fide breeder that cared about their puppies behavior and welfare that growing up particularly in that critical period for development during a time where life was excuse my scientific term wonky our lives were so strange they were so bland and barren that actually trying to um, create a blueprint for a future enriched life for these dogs would be pretty challenging given that socialization and habituation opportunities during some periods, particularly restricted lockdowns, would be pretty challenging. So we went about studying this with a, a UK sample. So looking at puppies who had been bought specifically after the onset of that first lockdown in, in March 20, 2020 um, through to the end of 2020. And then comparing that to a, a sample of pups who'd been bought in 2019 during that same date period. We know there's potential fluctuations in motivations and behaviours to buy puppies throughout the year, obviously thinking about the old Dogs Trust campaign of a Dogs for Life, not just for Christmas, knowing that there is that pre-Christmas puppy buying surge. So we wanted to try and lock in a comparable period. Um, and we had a really great response to it. And um, hugely thanks to the UK's kind of animal welfare and, and veterinary profession who shared it really widely, which really helps obviously from the perspective of, of having reliable, well-powered data. And we had over seven and a half thousand owners um, take part um, who bought their pups. So specifically, these were owners who bought a puppy from a commercial seller. They hadn't been, for example, given it by a family member, they hadn't rehomed it from a rescue centre, and crucially the pups had to be under 16 weeks to capture these puppies in this critical period um, for development. And as a kind of whistle-stop tour of some of our key findings that really jumped out, um, one of the main um, concerns was that we saw a change in the demographics of pet owners during this time. So we found a shift towards first-time dog owners, so people who had, had never um, had primary responsibility of a dog before, and also into households that more often had young children, so children aged five to 10. So we had some red flags there, knowing that from the veterinary literature that 
first-time dog ownership is often associated with some poor outcomes for, for dog behaviour and welfare. And we're also concerned about the shift towards people with children in the household buying pups, because at the same time, we were starting to see these increased reports, both from the UK, but also internationally, of um, a, a, a spike in dog bites during periods of lockdown. Studies are now being replicated the world over, showing that there was this increased um, bite risk, particularly to young people. Rowena, I mean, seven and a half thousand, I would imagine, is a really big sample number for some of the things that you might have done before. So it was a, yeah. a huge response, presumably. Yeah, well, absolutely. We were we were thrilled to get that much data because, again, what obviously as, as researchers, always concerned about how generalizable our results are. Are we just getting it from a very odd little section of the population? And as we were sampling, we were keen to sample across the UK, and we had all UK regions represented with no particular bias towards the usual one being in the southeast, getting lots of London owners, but we had good coverage. So that makes us more confident that these results are, are reliable um, and, and representative of the UK situation. Fantastic. And I suppose one of the questions perhaps to ask is looking forward, has there been a lot of relinquishments as well? Have you been able to follow some of that data through? Because that was the worry that post-pandemic, as people's lives got back to normal, uh, we would see a rush of pets going into um, rescue centres and so on. Has that happened in your experience and, and yours, Sarah? So we're seeing, we're following our pups from 2020. We were very kindly funded by Battersea to follow our 2020 cohort, because the owners who wanted to follow on with us, um, to study their early lives. So most of our pups now are around 21 to 24 months old. So they're definitely not puppies anymore. Some of them are pretty big rambunctious dogs from their owners reports so far. Um, and we're seeing some relinquishment both within our cohort and from um, discussing with the, the rehoming sector in the UK. But I think it hasn't been as um, the tsunami of relinquishments that was predicted. So I think there was a, a real worry that particularly when there was Freedom Day, it was in July of, uh, of 21, that all of a sudden everybody would just be like, right, I need to go on holiday. Bye bye, puppy <laughs> or big puppy or teenage dog. Um, and that doesn't seem to have happened in, in the kind of volume that we're worried about that are um, rescue centres um, across the UK who have reported that they are finding more dogs coming through um, and the media again often latch on to those and they seem to always make the, the newspapers. Um, but I think in general the, the challenge that we're seeing at the moment it seems in the sector is actually that more dogs that are being rehomed are presenting with significant behavioural problems. So these are dogs that will potentially have what we might think of as lower adoptability, um, so might end up staying in rescue shelters for, for much longer and finding it more challenging to, to find a home. So I think that's an evolving picture. Um, and in part, I think for many people, their lives post-pandemic, or <laughs> I shouldn't really say that, later pandemic, on as um, on as close to how they were in 2019 in terms of where and their patterns of work. So there's potential that that, that won't reach the levels that people anticipated. But in part, the flip side of that is, are they still suitable homes for those dogs to be in? Just being in a home is not necessarily a good thing. I was just going to say that, um, Rowena, because as you're talking, I'm, I'm just thinking about um, what we're seeing uh, in terms of referrals of behavioural concerns. Um, and what my GP colleagues are seeing in general veterinary practice um, with animals that are coming in for their general veterinary care, where they are reporting that they're seeing animals which are much more difficult to handle, 
um, that with caregivers who are speaking about difficulty with them at home, but also a lot of misunderstanding. So unfortunately, as Rowena pointed out in her study, she showed very clearly that we were having this um, bias towards novice dog caregivers. And these people also had no access to appropriate advice or very limited access to appropriate advice during the pandemic because of lockdown. So there were no puppy classes um, in, you know, there were virtual ones put on, but um, no face-to-face ones. Um, the veterinary practices sadly were absolutely on their knees and unable to have nursing clinics and unable to have sort of the peripheral care as it's sometimes thought of wrongly in my opinion it shouldn't be peripheral it should be central veterinary care but um emotional health is is sometimes um, not looked at in that way um and so there was a lot of effort to make sure that physical health was catered for but very very little um thinking about emotional health of the dog and cat population at that time and We've seen exactly the same parallels in the human animal, of course, as well, that, that they also have had a, a massive, massive increase in um, mental well-being issues. Cognitive and emotional health in humans has also been battered um, by the pandemic. And so we shouldn't be surprised when other non-human animals are having exactly the same um, issues. So I would say, although the relinquishment has not been as alarming as one would have predicted or certainly was we we thought could be i i think there's two effects on that one is as rowena just said being in a home isn't always all it's cracked up to be but also remembering that we may get a delayed effect um because we have no idea how life is going to get back to in inverted commas normal and whatever that normal will be so it may be that we've just got a lull before the storm um because we may be just delaying it kicking the can down the road Um, And also those animals that are in homes where people are struggling and misunderstanding what's going on. And and sometimes, you know, the dominance myth is still alive and well and kicking, sadly. And so people will be using punitive techniques to deal with frustrated young dogs um, who, you know, because they believe they're exhibiting behaviours that need to be punished. Um, We may be seeing in the future. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm, I'm really the harbinger of doom here but i do feel that um the next 10 20 years is not looking very um, bright the the interesting thing um with people not going to uh, work and if you like spending that five days away presumably the separation uh, issues frustration anxiety are lessened but nevertheless post sort of lockdown pandemic people will be going out more. So those dogs and cats will be left in the house on their own and are more likely to have separation issues. You know, again, obviously we're talking a lot about dogs there. Cats, to some degree, more likely to be a sort of solo creature, perhaps don't need the same attention that maybe a dog does. So maybe are they coping better with the separation, frustration, separation, anxiety issues that perhaps are more common in dogs, or would you say that's not correct? Perhaps Sarah first and then Rowena. It's it's a complicated one, um, Anthony, because separation-related problems are are not all related to anxiety. It was great to hear you then talking about frustration as well as anxiety, because I think one of the things that's been shown um, in some of the research is that the dogs that are faced now with caregivers being absent are becoming frustrated by that change 
in their expectations not being met. So they have an expectation of a certain type of um, availability of human interaction and therefore they are struggling through frustration rather than anxiety. So I think uh, one of the big things about this is, is to make sure we are very clear that separation anxiety is not a syndrome. It's not a thing. You know, separation problems come from all sorts of different motivations um, of which one is anxiety, but it's far, far more complex than that. And the other thing to say when, on the species differences is that I think cats definitely have been influenced by the pandemic. Um, and obviously, we've got to remember that um, domestic cats, if they are exposed to high levels of human social contact during those early weeks of life, are likely to have a higher requirement for it or a, a higher desire to have human interaction, even though they don't actually need it in terms of their social behaviour. So the difference is that cats are sociable, but they're not what we call obligately social. That means they don't need social interaction to survive, but they can learn to appreciate it. And those of us who care for cats, and I know, Anthony, you have your beloved cat um, who you adore very much and you spend a lot of social time with. And that social interaction is different from interaction with a dog, but it's very definitely there. Um, and we may be seeing problems in cats with frustration related to social interaction being different um, and we may have raised kitten expectation of feline, of human interaction to levels that, that then are not able to be met. And that could be problematic. I think it's interesting, Sarah. One, I would say um, thank you for the, the compliment there. I've had a very good teacher around separation issues. So that's why I to use the right language. Uh, but two, actually, you know, Buddy came to us during the pandemic, almost adopted us. And, you know, thinking about what's happened, I know that the household that he came from was a busy household with dogs, with children. Suddenly they're all in the house full time. They're wanting to be with him all the time, grabbing him, touching him. We, we have, you know, when we have party gatherings and there's a lot of people in the house, he will disappear upstairs under the bed or go out. So almost there can be the opposite thing. He is an older cat, he's 14, 15. If he's used to a housework, there hasn't been a lot of uh, interaction because they've been out all day and suddenly they're in all day, that can be just too much for him. And actually, you know, you have to let cats come to you rather than go to them, don't you? Yeah, and many, many cats have suffered from that. And I think it has been almost the opposite for cats that um, having us around all day for dogs was like, oh, yippee, yippee, this is great. We can have lots of social contact. Although, please don't think that's always the case because no. that social contact may have been inappropriate social contact with yes. children grabbing and sticking crayons down their ears and all sorts. Um, and therefore, that's not good social contact. But for cats, you're absolutely right. One of the problems was the house was busy, but the other was, um, if you remember, and it seems a long time ago now, but was good weather. Do you remember that? Um, and everybody was out in the garden and cats were finding they couldn't use their normal passage tracks to get from A to B because there were gardens full of trampolining, paddling, pooling, screaming children. Yes. Um, and the cats therefore couldn't even get their everyday patrolling of their territory done in peace and quiet, which they're used to doing when all the humans go to school and work and the cats yeah. can do what they like. That was taken away from them. So I think for cats, life was very different in a different way. And hence, Buddy went off to his, packed up his bags and went off to his retirement home. 
Absolutely. And Rowena, we did talk about this, didn't we? When we've been chatting about research that sadly we haven't done as much about cats. No, and I think it's, I've had some horrible lived experience, unfortunately, of unhappy cats during the pandemic. My, um, my male, it fits the, the very much with the risk factors for FIC, but my male cat, very sensitive chap, um, had blocked during the, um, the pandemic, as it seems many did. I think there needs to be more research to see whether there was an increase in, in FIC through primary practice and cats blocking. But again, every... Priding myself in what I thought was a pretty cat-friendly environment, and yet when you add in all of a sudden going from, I was on maternity leave at the very start of the pandemic, and then all of a sudden he was faced with being at home with me, a nine-month-old who just started to move um, a lot more, my partner, my dog, and that was too much for him, clearly. We've, he's now very thriving again in back in his own routines and having his own space, time and many, many more vertical surfaces. But that was a, a huge point of guilt for me. But it was it, I just thought if I'm if being what I would consider relatively cat savvy and put enough things in place, what I thought was enough things in place to keep him happy clearly was not he found it incredibly stressful to go from a very quiet household to what for him probably felt like pandemonium for that for initial phase of the pandemic so yeah I think we need to learn a lot more about those those consequences particularly if some of those things have been retained obviously I'm sitting here doing this podcast from the office as is my other half my child's not in childcare he's back to having his lovely quiet house for eight hours a day while everybody's gone um but there's obviously many households where there still are more adults at home or potentially more children at home or for different periods of time and I think considering those animals needs as we relax um, restrictions but also as we adapt to a post-pandemic life I think we need to incorporate our pets and their emotional health within that. That's uh, just going to pick up there and see if I can that what Rowena just said about FIC is bringing us into those of those of you heard me ever speak before and know about the sync model of emotional health that I created and also that I talk as well about the health triad um, and the fact that emotional physical and cognitive health are are equally important parts of healthcare and therefore the responsibility of the veterinary profession in total not just physical and what Rowena's just said then is just a lovely illustration of the fact that there's a physical disease process influenced by the emotional state of the cat and this pandemic has really highlighted the importance of the veterinary profession thinking about healthcare in its entirety. We are responsible for the health of the non-human animal population and therefore we have to take that seriously in the fact that you can't separate emotional, cognitive and physical health. It's not um, a case in the past people used to ask the question, oh is it medical or is it behavioural? That's not a sensible question. Um, It's a health problem and emotional and physical factors are likely to both be involved, and then cognition as well. And therefore, we, we you know we've got to broaden the veterinary outlook. And that's what I'm hearing from my general practitioner friends as well is that they're they're realizing more and more that you know, the patients they're seeing and these pandemic puppies may have highlighted it that they're emotionally unstable, they're emotionally unwell, and that actually that is influencing potentially what we're seeing in health terms physical health terms so Rowena maybe I'd love to you know get involved in research that looks at the health profile of dogs um, pre and post pandemic as well did we see a change in FIC in cats I think is is probably the obvious one but what about gastrointestinal disturbance in dogs Um, what about infectious diseases across both species 
because we know that physiological stress resulting from emotional disturbance results in altered immune function, altered ability to control weight. So have we seen any increase or change in obesity? Um, also, it changes the mucosal integrity of organs you know, such as the bladder, the lungs, the gut, the skin. And it also changes pain perception. So um, the relevance of pain to the individual. So we, this, I mean, this is a this is such a massive area, but hopefully one good thing, we're looking for good things that can come out of the pandemic. Hopefully one good thing is if it means that the veterinary profession is better at encompassing all aspects of healthcare and considering it, um, then that will be at least a benefit. But Sarah, this was something, you know, I remember coming to a conference that you were speaking at for the BVDSG, for the British Veterinary Dermatology Study Group. So very much stress and those conditions that we were talking about, how they how they interact. Just just for those people listening who perhaps aren't aware of all the acronyms of your non-veterinary uh, FIC is feline idiopathic cystitis, so a disease of the bladder. But um, yeah, no, it's a it's a really it's a really interesting point. If we could perhaps move on, um, I think to a couple of areas that I think are are really interesting. You know, we've seen this increase in the number of pets. Obviously the cost of pets uh, have gone up dramatically as well. You then end up when when something is very valuable, something, somebody. Um, I remember speaking to the Dogs Trust and they were finding that it was, criminal gangs were bringing in pets from places like Eastern Europe because there was less risk and it was more lucrative than bringing in drugs because if they were caught, they just relinquished the puppies and went back to wherever they'd come from. Obviously, if you found with drugs in your car, you're in for you know a big uh, prison sentence. Is there a worry that has this become more common? And are we also seeing you know people going into professions like dog walking who are obviously not suitably qualified either and causing problems that way? So we're getting as well as having a lot of novice caregivers as in first time pet owners, are we seeing a lot of people coming in as unscrupulous breeders and, you know, in those other ancillary roles like, you know, dog sitting or, or dog walking or whatever? What What's your experience? Perhaps Sarah first and then Rowena. This is very, very sad, um, but sadly it's true. Um, we've seen a, a, a real change um, in all of those areas. Um, well, not so much the smuggling, we don't get so involved with that, although I, I've heard reports of that, maybe Rowena knows more about that. But in terms of the um, the issue of breeding um, and the issue of ancillary dog services, then definitely we have seen some very um, worrying trends. Um, one of the very worrying trends is the fact that obviously because of the financial change in um, dog purchase prices, which um, again, Rowena will have some information on the percentage rises, but the utterly ridiculous increases in prices, that people have seen this as an opportunity to go into breeding for, for less than reputable reasons. Um, and obviously there are still some excellent breeding um, dog breeders out there who are very scrupulous and are doing everything right. And most of the breed um, societies actually do have price structures um, and most caregivers don't know that but if you're looking for a pedigree if you go to the breed society they should have a price recommendation 
for the price of puppies. Um, and if people are charging outside of that range, you really should go elsewhere um, because you know, if they're reputable with pedigrees, this is, then they will be following the guidance of their breed society. And I actually personally had a problem. I, I um, was getting a new puppy, um, and as I say, in 2021, and I got to the point of going and visiting a litter, um, selecting a puppy. Actually, I needed to select two because the um, stud dog um the person had pick of the litter and hadn't chosen yet so I was asked to pick two um so I did that and then literally um a few days week well about a week or so before due to pick the puppy up um I had an email message from the breeder asking for another 500 quid um which took that price outside of the recommendation for the breed so the breed had a recommended level which obviously I knew and the price I'd been quoted was the top end of that range, which I'd accepted was OK. But the new price days before, after having visited the litter, et cetera, um, was £500 above the top of the recommended um, level. Obviously, I questioned that. And when I questioned it, I got a, a very um, not, not pleasant email back accusing me of questioning the person's integrity and refusing to sell me a puppy. Um which actually, obviously, I wouldn't have got one anyway at that extra money. I've, I've since got one from a reputable breeder in the price range. She's absolutely adorable. She's mm. 10 months old now. I think and, it's, it I think it's called gazumping, isn't it, Sarah? Yes. And, and if that's happening with, you know, inside um, breeds, then you can say that that's definitely happening across the spectrum. Um, and I've seen on, you know, the, the websites of, of the breed, my particular breed, you know, excessive 1500 more than what the breed um society is recommending um so that's one area and then the other thing is dog walkers dog caregiver um home boarders dog clubs etc and, and goes back to what rowena said about is it the fact that we haven't got this surge in relinquishment is that actually you know a sign that things are fine no because the dogs that are staying in these other homes are going to more caregivers as in things like um daycare they're going they're having more dog walker experience because these people are going back to work so yes they're keeping the dogs but they're needing to use these ancillary services and so there's been a boon in people who are disillusioned with their own jobs maybe were furloughed during um, lockdown now decide they want to do something else realizing that they can make considerable amounts of money from looking after other people's dogs and they don't need any qualification to do that formally they do obviously need some licensing from local authorities thankfully but that is very variable in its integrity depending on the local authority sadly and so what we've got is a problem of these dogs being put into the care of people who don't know what they're doing um, the dog walking particularly has become much more group walking than one-to-one -one walking now. The trend is to put them all in the back of a van, drive around for hours during the day with dogs who are distressed next to each other in cages, um, creating emotional distress and then walking them irresponsibly. So they then attack other dogs on walks and distress them. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare picture. And again, I, I wanted a dog walker for my dog when I because I do have to go to work and I need a dog walker I wanted a one-to-one -one dog walker and I contacted 15 different potential dog walkers in my area and found only one who was willing to do one-to-one -one dog walking and all of them said no we only do group walks um that'll be fine you know she'll be in the um taken in a secure air-conditioned van blah 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 
Um, and I said, no, I don't want a, a group walk. And they said, oh, dear, has your dog got a problem? Is your dog mm. aggressive to other dogs? And I said, no, but I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't want group dog walking. And yeah. it's almost impossible to find that. And it's inevitable if you put 10, 15 dogs together, they will fight amongst each other. But as you say, you're more likely to go out and uh, attack other dogs on the walk, but also people as well. Anthony, they may not necessarily, again, going back to the sink analogy and the terminology I use there of repulsion, avoidance, inhibition and appeasement. Remember, repulsion, which is the confrontational form of defensive behaviour, is only one form. And so you may see them that show confrontational behaviour. But what about the ones who show appeasement and inhibition, the ones who are trying to use avoidance and can't because they're in cages? Those dogs then start to have problems of diarrhea, problems of skin disease, problems of infectious disease. They're coming into the vets. And then when we ask, do you use a dog walker or do you use a dog daycare centre? Then, you know, again, Rowena, another project for you. What's the correlation between the disease profile of pets in the veterinary practice and whether they use a dog walker or a daycare centre and what those facilities are like? And that very much is an anxiety thing. They're, they're anxious Absolutely. when they're amongst all those other dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, let's just say, as we did with the breeders, there are some very reputable dog walkers yes. and some very reputable home um, boarders and, and daycare centres. Very reputable. I'm not saying this is everyone. Um, it's just that there has been an increase in the numbers that are, unfortunately, not ideal. Perhaps just moving on, Rowena, within your studies, you know, looking at the most popular breeds, because these are also sometimes the most popular breeds that are rising up the the uh, the charts, if you like, are, are breeds like the French Bulldog, like the English Bulldog, which are obviously not the most healthy of breeds in the first place. So we're actually taking on people, people are taking on dogs that are the, the less healthy breeds anyway and will will be coming into contact more with vets because of the the issues that they get i mean the other point is obviously these crossbreed dogs which are now um, from a marketing perspective it's a fantastic job you you know i used to call them a crossbreed but they're now called cockapoos or you know whatever other poo that you want to talk about um it's um you know it's an interesting marketing exercise that as you say these are breeds and and you hear outlandish prices for what is basically a crossbreed dog as well. Yeah, we've, we've literally just got some work about to come out on that, which was actually from our pandemic puppy data set. So we documented that between 2019 and 2020 that there was the biggest demographic surge was an, a shift from pedigree dogs to designer crosses. Um, it was around um, one in five dogs in 2019 were a designer cross, and it's now over one in four. So we're looking at potentially more than a quarter of, of dogs in the UK and our vet compass data of vet attending dogs cor corroborates that. We're seeing particularly huge numbers of cockapoos probably being the, the poster child of that. But um, during the pandemic, both our data set and the Pets for Home, so one of the online um, selling sites found a huge surge in Cavapoos, so Cavalier, King Charles Spaniel, cross poodles. And again, we were interested in, in why are people flocking towards these breeds? I mean, they've been around probably more than a decade in the UK and originated from Australia um, with good intentions. So the Labradoodle was initially um, intended to be a hypoallergenic, and I said it with inverted commas, cross um, between the working um, 
Labradors um, that were used in that purpose and Poodles. And they were given that portmanteau name as a marketing tool so that people would adopt the dogs that didn't make it. Because otherwise they were, as you said, you know, people would just say, oh, a random fluffy mongrel. I don't want to adopt your cast offs from your from your working um, dog programs. But that has absolutely obviously taken hold across the world. And in terms of why people were, were trying to source them in the UK, um, unsurprisingly, um, around half of, of owners of those breeds wanted them because they perceived them to be hypoallergenic, which in, in terms of the, the data behind that, it is incredibly patchy and there's there's relatively solid evidence to show there's no difference in the levels of CANF1, the, the dog allergen in the households of dogs that are purported to be um, hypoallergenic designer crosses versus other dogs. And there's huge variability in that um, expression between individuals of the same breed. So that's a real red flag in terms of when we think about relinquishment risks. We know allergies are often used yeah. as a reason for relinquishment. And so if you're buying a pup based on that, say if your, your children are allergic, then you could quite rapidly realise that that is you've made the wrong decision there. Um, the other thing that really concerned us was that they were very much being sourced as an off-the-shelf good family dog, which I'm sure all of us know does not exist um, as an off-the-shelf product. And we're talking about sentient animals, we're talking about breeds that have enormous within-breed as well as um, between-breed differences. So talking about, I want a dog that's easy to train and be good with my kids, that is a huge influence of nurture. You're not just going to get that by buying a dog that looks like a teddy bear, particularly yeah. if that means your children are inclined to be um, to interact with it in a more inappropriate way from that dog's perspective. Um, and again, a lot of the purchasing behaviours from those owners were really worrying. So owners were more likely to be finding these pups via the kind of online selling sites less likely to be viewing them in person prior to the purchase, which obviously, as Sarah said, is such an essential part of that process. The, the most efficient tool or the most effective tool in our armory against the illegal puppy trade right now is visit, visit and visit again. And I'm saying that three times because you need to visit as soon as you can as that after that those puppies are born obviously you can't interact so much with tiny tiny pups but seeing that litter making a bond with that breeder seeing them again maybe five plus weeks when they're getting into that really cute playful stage where you can interact with them and then on visit three taking them home you can't skip those initial phases because the illegal puppy trade can and will emulate that by for example renting an airbnb getting a stunt mom bringing in a litter from eastern europe at, as we've already said, at little cost to them, at great cost to both that dog and its future welfare and also financially to that owner. Um, so skipping that real, real red flag. Um, again, the Adesana cross owners were less likely to be seeing the pups with their mum and their litter mates, both illegal and a huge red flag for those puppies having not been bred in that property, which we said is now in, enshrined in UK law. And as we already said about cash, more likely to cost over £2,000, which I know vets in general are very averse to designer crosses, and particularly when they hear that owners have paid that much for a crossbreed or a mongrel, they are generally not very happy about that, particularly if it means, from a welfare perspective, that owner now has less available cash either to insure or have in, the, in reserve for future vet fees. Um, the most contentious area, I think, in terms of where it's a bit of a grey area was uh, designer cross owners were more likely to be looking for a dog that they breed that they consider to be healthy, but on the flip side, were less likely to be looking for a breeder that conducted pre-breeding health tests. 
and often they didn't perceive that there were any available for their breed and potentially not if you're if you're say an f2 so it's a labradoodle cross labradoodle um there might not be bespoke genetic tests although there are still schemes like the bba hip scheme but if you're coming from two pedigree breeds of which for most there is a, a growing list of potential pre-breeding screening to think that that doesn't apply because there's some kind of magic is added into the breeding when you suddenly cross two breeds together is, is a real problem for the future. Because again, I'd probably rather, and I'm being controversial here, somebody buy a cockapoo than a French bulldog for the health reasons that we've already alluded to. But it doesn't mean to say just because they are more sound confirmationally that they won't have debilitating future problems like hip dysplasia, that we at least have some tools in our armory to try and breed against. Can I just add, add a couple of the thank you, Rowena, that was brilliant. But also just to put with your three visits, the other visit that I, I really urge people with pedigree um, and intended breeding, so not only pedigree, but intended breeding, um, is to visit the mother before she gets pregnant to find out whether you like the mother herself, yeah. not with her puppies, but her mm -hmm. as a dog and the father. And the, when I went to visit the dad of my present um, dog, um, she said to me um, that she really welcomes people to visit the sire and is, is absolutely flabbergasted by how often they don't visit. And she always says to the breeder of the dam, these are my details, please give them to any prospective um, people who want a puppy and say they're very welcome to come and meet the dad. Um, and I think that is really, really important. You know, uh, if, if it is an intended litter, meet the parents before I drove a, 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 this puppy that I did get, not the one I didn't, because um, actually I wasn't able to see the father there, another red flag. Um, but I went, you know, drove four hours to see the mum and the dad, first of all, before the litter was born, then went and saw them when they were born, then went and saw them at six weeks, then went and got them at eight, eight weeks. So... Yeah, that was a lot of driving um, in order to make sure had all of that input beforehand. And um, if you're not doing that beforehand, how how much are you planning and thinking? And that's where this you know impulse buying happened during the lockdown. None of that was happening and couldn't happen. First, to be fair. A first so time buyer isn't going to do it, are they, Sarah? Well, if they don't know, if they're not educated yeah. to know what buying a puppy means, then no, they won't do it. But if, if we, we were better as a profession... At trying to explain uh, when you're going to to purchase a puppy this is what you need to be doing maybe you know if you're going to buy a house or you're going to buy a car or you know maybe i mean now there's things like cinch isn't there on the telly where you just look at it on a website and get your car dumped on your drive so maybe it's happening with everything um but you know generally a major purchase mm. you would see it first you would do your research but yes. it's also not felt well, in pandemic times, they weren't seeing it as a major lifelong purchase. It was an impulse purchase for yes. all the, those things that Rowena was talking about that are so important. People, people want it as easy as possible, don't they? So, you know, the example of the car, as you say, we would have spent a lot more time because it's a major purchase. And that probably is translating into our, you know, uh, deciding on a, on a puppy Maybe just a last point, because this has gone on quite a long time, but it's actually such good content. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the vets and nurses listening are enjoying it. And if people, you know, from outside the profession are listening before they purchase a pet and it makes them think a bit more seriously about it, then it's really, really important. The final thing, of course, is that sometimes 
now with with dog breeding there are there are unscrupulous uh, sort of ai type clinics also coming about aren't there so you know you won't see the dog because you might see a test tube but that's about it so and and this is completely unregulated isn't it as well so we're 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 getting into problems where people aren't really even understanding all the how you bring a you know a, a female and a male dog together to make sure that you're having you know the best possible pups coming out what what are your thoughts and are you hearing about that service i'm certainly hearing about it from vets um you know breeding ai companies uh, sort of coming up and and obviously being not trained and, and not really suitable to do the job yeah another wor worrying trend one of the things that if you are going down that route, and there are some reasons why that may be happening for example with you know using stock from abroad and those sorts of things in certain breeds and um, so, again, as we said, with the breeders and the dog walkers and the daycare, there's always some there's variation in, in, in the scrupulous um, behaviour within all sorts of areas of life, isn't there? But having said that, one of the things that I think many people who are going to get a puppy don't know about is the um, coefficient of inbreeding. And that's freely available um, by going to the, the Kennel Club you, um, website or the Coefficient website. You can actually put in the names of the sire and the dam and um, get a calculation of the um, the uh, coefficient of inbreeding for that mating. And you can compare that with the standard for that breed. So you can actually um, check up on that sire in a test tube, um, at least to some extent, to see whether it's a suitable um, way of matching um, in terms of the coefficient but also the other thing is to think about um, again it's the research you do you know if that uh, is a stud dog within a breed then you should be able to get information about it you should be able to contact the the person who cares for that individual you should be able to email them ask for photos and videos of him at home you know um, so it depends how much work you're willing to put in to finding out um, but if people are not aware that this is happening and don't know that those resources are available, the Kennel Club website has these resources, but lots of people have no idea about them. And the health tests that Rowena talked about, lots of people don't even know they exist, never mind how to find out the results um, or whether to question the breeder as to whether they've carried them out. So it's again, it's as with so many things, sadly, it's education, isn't it? It's, you know, if you know this stuff, then you can do it. But these caregivers, if they don't have that information then how do they you know how are they going to know to what to do in preparation yeah and i think it's getting people invested in the whole process as you said sarah from even before the conception of your dog and i think people think that that's probably ludicrous that oh that isn't that far too over the top but if you want to you know, have, and there's no guarantees in life when it comes to breeding dogs, and I think getting the public to be more aware of that is also key, but realising that the, the factors that you can control are available to you, so arming yourself with that information and just making the public question some of these practices that we're seeing coming through. You know, the rise of particularly illegal AI is often to facilitate the breeding of dogs with confirmations that don't lend themselves to either conception or natural birth. And, you know, that's a huge red flag, so a huge red flag for is that an animal that's fit for function as a companion animal? I think in most of us would agree, very likely not if a breed, for example, needs 80 plus percent of bitches need a C-section. Um, so I think just getting that 
people to question and one of my biggest frustrations and maybe it's because we're all old cynics now but it's just making people feel be less trustworthy towards people who uh, are involved in their pets or their future pet or their pet's lives so whether it is um who is going to breed their puppy or who is going to care for their dog while they're at work it's not this kind of blanket assumption that they're doing it because they like or love animals and i feel like as a public we've got a bit of a rose into glasses effect it's like oh they're, they're not just doing it for money or people's perception of what a bad breeder is 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 far more dramatic they think it it is the, the you know the horrific puppy farm setup again that can be masked and i think having that extra questioning mind that we will often have if we're buying a house or a used car and applying that to our pets seems it feel you feel like the fun police sometimes but i think it's essential to make people more inquiring and more cynical because it's for the sake of their dog and their own relationship with that dog as we've said for a decade plus it's worth that investment and where we saw their designer crossbreeds we've got owners who their key factors the key different differentiating factors between them and purebred dogs in their motivation for a breeder was that they were um, within a distance they were willing to travel and that they had puppies available at the time that they wanted a puppy and as Sarah said responsible dog buying involves sometimes really long distance drives repeatedly which now we don't have the pandemic as a blocking factor that's available to many of us um, and also the availability of puppies I think you feel like you've already missed the boat if the puppies are there ideally in a really gold standard purchase the puppies are a thought in a breeder's mind rather mm -hmm. than yeah. sitting there saying that they're eight weeks old and ready to go for two and a half grams so yeah i think there's a huge shift that's needed in in the way that we think about and what, that we actually buy pups in the uk and maybe as a final thing that's the the silver lining in in the pandemic in that it's made us think more because we couldn't do it about what we should be doing because you know certainly you know i was a vet in practice for a long time and I think for a lot of people it was, oh, you know, I'm looking for a golden retriever puppy, right, I'll go on the newspaper or, you know, even before the internet became available, right, you know, who's got, you know, either a pregnant bitch or, or you know, a, a dog that's just had puppies so we can go and see them. So th this is really important information. I always learn when I'm listening to Sarah, but I'm now also realizing I will also learn when I listen to you as Rowena. So thank you so much for a fantastic uh, talk. And uh, hopefully this will be useful for, for all the colleagues out in practice as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.